Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I'm your host as always, joined by cohort, comrade, and colleague Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I am in a great mood. Let me tell you why. I'll open with a, a little excerpt from Bill Chambers' review of uh, our movie today. He's the guy from Film Freak Central. And in June 22nd, 2003, he wrote, Leaves you with the sensation of having chewed a piece of bubblegum until well after its flavor ran dry. Well, Bill, I just watched this movie, and let me tell you, I can still taste that flavor, and I love it. Yes, as today, we are reviewing Empire Records here on The Contrarians, the seminal 90s classic. And yeah, the, just a mean-spirited review to kick things off, and we're here to prove him wrong. I don't that. think Bill Chambers likes music. I, I he, he can't. I don't think he likes the, the life of the adjusted, white, straight, adolescent teenager. Uh, and we're here just to prove that wrong today. Empire Records, of course, had an egregious 24% on Rotten Tomatoes. Today. Heartbreaking. I don't understand. So we'll just get right into it. Empire Records starts off with our main character, Lucas, played by Rory Cochran. Is uh, he our main character? I think there's many main characters throughout this. I think it's a um, it's kind of like a, a Medusa head where you've got the snakes from every angle coming in and you don't really know which one to focus on, but I think he gets the majority of the screen time. It's his story, after all. Or so one would think. I think I'm, I'm leaning towards Anthony LaPaglia. You know, the guy that has a drum set in the office, that's the main guy, usually. We start off in Joe's office, actually, yeah. as uh, Rory Cochran, Lucas, Joe, Anthony LaPaglia, has left Lucas to close the store for the night. He just left him specific instructions not to touch his drumsticks cigars or beer to count the money twice and to get the deposit made to the local bank. Well, everything's going according to plan when a really hungry housewife shows up after hours and uh, she's looking good and she's really disgruntled with her current uh, marital situation. She dispenses the first piece of uh, wisdom that we get throughout the movie which is never marry a trucker. She is married to a tow truck driver and just gets really lonely at night and she's there to just, I guess, hit up whoever was there and it just happens to be Lucas and, you know, he's in for the ride. Yeah, yeah, she inspires him. She was she was meant to inspire someone and it happened to be Lucas. So, needless to say, Lucas gets a bit lucky and then we cut to him smoking a cigar, drinking a beer, playing with Joe's drumsticks and not really t- counting the deposit that thoroughly. And then while wandering through Joe's desk, he finds the layout and contract for Empire Records to be turned into a Music Town Records. This is just the first hint of the corporate versus indie lifestyle that we hit in this movie. Not the last, though. Yeah, now before we move past this prologue, I think it, it would be better if we explain what a music store is. Because these days, I guess most of our audience maybe wouldn't be familiar with what it was like in the glory days when you could just walk into a building and... The, the early to mid to even late 90s, really. So basically, uh, a record store was like if iTunes were a physical place. So just imagine that iTunes is like a building, and all your songs are in there, but you have to go inside and pick it up. 
Except but it's better than that because it's a celebration of music. You go in and there are other people like in the flesh buying music and listening to music and talking about music and not just employees but the customers as well. So And there's people was, that work there that can direct you to the right types exactly. of music. Exactly. It was not like this online impersonal thing that we have going on now. It was it was really a, a very enlightening experience where uh, you know, you would walk into a music store and come out with knowledge that you didn't have before. You go in for a specific type of music and come out with brand new ideas what you wanted to listen to. Exactly. And this was really the mid-90s is where things started downward spiral because the indie record stores were, were like the mecca were being shut out. And this is the problem Lucas faces early on in this movie. He doesn't want his grassroots record store to be turned into just another mass-producing piece of you know Americana, so to speak. So he sees this and just takes it upon himself in a, in a real moment of youth-based hubris to save the record store. He takes the astounding nine grand that this record store has made over the course of the evening and just takes it down the road to Atlantic City, puts it on the crap table, makes a bet, and he doubles his money with one roll of the dice. But again, his youth gets the best of him and just gambles it all away. He should have walked away after the first one. But if he had done that, we wouldn't have had the following hour and 20 minutes of just utter delight. Actually, I'm pretty convinced that we could have followed those characters for an hour and a half, even if the store was not in danger, and we still would have had as much fun, because they would have been partying the entire time anyway. They would have found something else to like dance to and uh, it would have been the last out. five minutes of the movie for the whole hour and a half right i mean you know what even like even if he hadn't lost the money rex manning was still coming to the store so, so it just would have been like a lot more fun and not negativity based when he got there exactly so we go to the morning after where find lucas strung out on a bike outside the store and we meet our secondary male characters of the film which are aj and mark played by johnny whitworth and ethan Embry, respectively Two, I guess you could also, I'm seeing your point now about Lucas being the main character, because AJ and Mark we follow very closely throughout the next hour and a half as well. Uh, yeah, I think, I actually think, if anything, AJ has more of an arc than, than Lucas. They're asking him what he's doing there, and he, in just very vague terms, explains to them what happened, and that the money's gone. And then he takes off, and we lose track of him. And that's when Joe pulls up, walks into the store, gets the news, gets a call from the bank that the deposit didn't come, and then gets a call from Mitchell Beck, the, the big corporate honcho that's about to take over. The man. The, the man. We'll get to the man more. And he's wondering where the hell the money is. He He's looking for it. He can't really make any sense of it, and it starts to unwind in his head. Meanwhile, It takes him a while to figure out what, like, put the pieces together, whereas, like, AJ and Mark, they figure out as soon as Lucas told him. Well, mm-hmm. I guess he didn't have the benefit of knowing that Lucas was all depressed. <laughs> And, you know, it's pretty impressive considering where we go as far as Mark's mental capacity goes later on in the film. Early early hours of the morning, that's like his best time. That's and his then, peak time. Yeah, that's his peak, and then his intellect decreases as the day goes on. It's when things are really fresh in his mind. We then go to a residential neighborhood where we meet our two lead female characters in the movie, Corey and Gina, played by Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger, two very lovely-looking females. We go back to the store, and Joe's angry. He's starting to freak out and figure out what's going on. As Corey and Gina pull up, we meet uh, our real, you know, our um, our lone wolf of the film, Burko, who lives in a shack behind the record store. He just comes out drinking his coffee and playing his guitar. It's time to open the store, though, as we go in. Corey's there just to do homework, though. She just shows up early. Well, everybody there, like, really, nobody's there to work. <laughs> so everybody's there to hang out, and then every now and then one of them gets stuck, like, working the register. They're doing homework, or they're just, like, hanging out, doing whatever. I mean, AJ is an artist, so he's painting most Apparently, of the time. Yeah. yeah. Just Corey is, like, the only one with their head on straight, though, because the rest of them are just listening to music and, you know... Being really rambunctious, and we get the impression that she's the one that's going to excel. She's the real shining star at Empire Records. 
But Joe wants to know why she's there so early because her shift doesn't start to the afternoon. We find out it's Rex Manning Day, which yes. apparently is the biggest day in the history of Empire Records. It's just fortunate that we get to see them on this day. Now, Rex Manning, I mean, it's a, it's a made-up pop star. Don't be fooled to thinking that he's real just because you see a music video throughout the movie featuring him and his latest hit. He's kind of an older guy now. You see him. I mean, you won't meet him until later into the movie, but you get the feeling that that's, he's going to play a big part in it. And he is. Here's my take on the movie, which it started building as I was re-watching it with you, which is Empire Records, you know, it's this shrine to music. It's like, it's a church. It's a temple with, you know, I don't want to get too heavy, but let's say that Joe, the manager, he's he's kind of, he's God. You know, he has, he cares for his people who are the employees. And Lucas, he kind of sacrifices himself or tries to sacrifice himself, you know, to, to save the store. Lucas is Jesus. And, of course, you know, the, the owner of the store is the man. Pontius and, Pilate. Exactly, yes. And Rex Manning. Rex Manning is the devil. As the story goes on, you'll see that this makes sense. But just keep this in mind. Rex Manning is the devil. Rex Manning may be the devil, but for now he's just a, a greatly fallen pop star who's trying to reclaim prior days of glory. And it's really a low point for him coming here. Before we can go much further than that, though, Corey's focus on school comes right back to the forefront where we just find out of nowhere she gets into Harvard. And, I mean, good for her. She's doing her homework at work, so... Everything is happening today. <laughs> it's Rex Manning Day. It's the day that they lose $9,000. It's the day that she gets into Harvard. And Joe, just sitting in his office, still just steaming over the fact that, that money's gone. He lures Mark back into his office. And as we already commented on, Mark is not the most mentally stable or trustworthy of people. So he spills the beans relatively easily. Great performance by Ethan Embry or terrible performance by Ethan Embry? I think that that's just kind of like one of those Beatles, Rolling Stones questions where like that determines what kind of person you are. How do you feel about the Ethan Embry performance? We'll get more into it as we go along, but I think that's he's either so good it's blinding or so bad that it's just right. hard is it to going, ignore. Is it going over your head, what he's doing, or, or is it just pure genius? I'll tell you this, like you can't take your eyes off of him. Anytime. You cannot. Yeah, I mean, he will command the screen anytime that he's there. So. Every scene he's in, you're paying attention to him yes and you can't decide why that is right he makes you think <laughs> it's true like nothing about his characters ever fully explained as far as mentality or backstory goes it seems that every other character has somewhat of a backstory to him and we'll get to several more as it goes but ethan Embry, he may just be a figment of the imagination of the rest of the cast or just a ghost you know to go with my my reading of it i think he's an angel Yes, you know, that's why he, he does have interactions with the other members of the cast, but he doesn't really exist in the sense of, like, a full human being with, like, no. a, a history and a future. You know, he just shows up and does He is the it. bold and courageous act there to change the course of history. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. So Lucas shows up at the store, and he's just, again, his youthful hubris has got the best of him, because he just thinks nothing bad's going to happen. He shows up with that jar of quarters. That he brought from Atlantic City. Joe just grabs him by the collar and throws him onto this leopard print couch in their, I guess, their break room and says he can't leave there until he finds the $9,000. Again, I hate to go back to this, but man, $9,000. Pretty impressive for a record store to make that in one night. That was, a, I don't know, was $1995, dollars too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a big release. That was the day that, I don't know, the latest Michael Jackson <laughs> Maybe. Out. The only thing, maybe, well, that, no, the Baja Men didn't come along until 99, so I'm not sure what would have come out that would have commanded that kind of gross. Seal. The latest Seal. <laughs> Kiss from a Rose came out. <laughs> maybe it did. Wasn't Batman Forever in 95? Uh, it was, I was still, yeah, 95. Okay. We get a back and forth between Gina and Corey, and it's very quick, but we both get the feeling they're insecure about just their, their lives in general, and 
I well, think that is the, the story is just that of the insecure white teenager. Right, but there is one thing that Corey is certain of, and that is that she is going to have sex with Rex Manning mm-hmm. when he arrives. That is her thing from the beginning. As soon as from the moment that we see her, she's like, I'm going to offer myself to the devil. Well, she calls him Rex Manning, but we know what's going on. He is the forbidden fruit. Yes. He's old and uh, has bad hair, but he is still, for some reason, like, this girl has a huge crush on him. And Gina is the temptress. I mean, there's no need to beat around the bush. She's the, the slut character in the film. Yeah. There's, so there's, she's just a, a real bad influence. The unlikely beacon of hope in Deborah, played by Robin Tunney, shows up on her Vespa and pulls in and immediately just goes to the restroom there in Empire Records and starts shaving her head as Free by the Martinis plays in the background. And we don't know anything about this character yet, but it's so liberating. Yeah, she makes an impression. And now, of course, we're like a fair ways into the movie and they just keep introducing characters. Mm-hmm. It's like the goodness never ends. You, you think like you're set and then someone else shows up and, you know, she's shaving her head now? Like, what's going on? Yeah, the movie keeps you on your toes. Joe then has a the moment of humanity where he's asking Lucas why he needed the money because if he needs it he would give it to him lucas still isn't being honest with him and joe just gets further infuriated it comes to a climax here before too long as robin tiny comes out of the bathroom to shave her head aj takes note of a bandage on her wrist yeah things get serious we get oscar moment number one of the movie when aj is questioning why the hell she has her wrist taped up and without saying it it's discovered that deb attempted to kill herself the night before Again, everything is happening today. Right. Maybe maybe Rex Manning Day is not a good day. Like, that's the day that you shouldn't show up to work because that's when everything happens. Well, no, actually, if you're Corey, it's a good thing because you get your Harvard acceptance letter. But also, you know, you tangle with the devil, so... Yeah, it's... yeah, that's right. That it's Yeah, just stay home on Rex Manning Day. I think uh, the most quizzical character of the film shows up next, and that's Eddie, the gentleman who works at the pizza place next door, but apparently... But also works at yeah, Empire Records. But he only has a job in the vinyl section. It's never fully fleshed out, but he shows up, and... The other thing that's interesting about Eddie is he's the only character that fully acknowledges and pays attention to Mark. So I think he may be another another angel. angel is, yeah, that makes sense. You know, his appearance is so sporadic. And I thought you were going to say that the, the weird thing about him is that he actually seems to know somewhat what he's talking about. But he, when it comes to music, he's the only yeah. one that knows anything about music in the film. <laughs> yeah, he's the only one that would actually, if you went into Empire Records, he'd be the one to actually, you know, direct you. To. <laughs> he's the only character that gives helpful advice to people about music throughout. The rest of them are they're just fun. They are, and then to You'd be have fair, a good time. they're caught up in their own little. Right. There's there's a lot going on today. Exactly. They may be at work, but they don't have time for work. Yeah. So Eddie swings by and drops off a mixtape with Mark. And uh, a mixtape is like when you make a playlist on your iPod. Before this, you would actually put this on a physical cassette tape. And a cassette tape is like a, a small VHS. And a VHS is like um, a big DVD, so you would put that on there. It was a bit more difficult to make than an, than an iPod playlist. But. Yeah, and you had to remember to rewind them. Mm-hmm. At the end, when you got to the end. It's true. And you couldn't let them run too fast. or it would. We've optimized technology, I think. Yes. But, for but the t- there, there was, like, th- there was something about, the, the, you know, the extreme care and the amount of work that it took to, like, make a mixtape. You know, that added to it. It's kind of like sending somebody a handwritten letter. You give a mixtape to someone you care about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously he cares a lot about Mark. And he's trying to help him here because he thinks Mark's taste in music is a bit questionable. And it seems to be. So but, well, it comes after, like, this sweet scene where Mark... Mark has put on some of his music and he's just moshing with the customers. <laughs> that's awesome, but also we should point out that that's not a, a very... Uh, uh, I wouldn't do that because that's why accident reports happen. 
Exactly. You hurt a customer when you're moshing, you elbow him and break their nose, and then, you know, you get in trouble. That's why they're heading towards a corporate structure at this point, because the indie lifestyle has has led them astray. He also gives them a batch of brownies, which he uh, says are his special recipe, extra sugar. Because this is PG-13, they can't specifically say it, but we're led to believe that there's a a bit of an extra something in the brownies. I mean, listen, that's what you get Ethan Embry. (laughs) You know, his performance tells you everything you need to know. One, about what was in those brownies, and two, what was in him before the brownies, because he basically, he's pretty messed up the entire movie. Eddie and Mark head to the back to the break room where the rest of the cast is, and they're just joking around with Lucas about blowing all the money away. To this point, Joe gets pissed and just drops the bombshell on all of them. Lucas was the only one to know up until this point that they're becoming a music town. Hands out the uniforms, gives them the code and conduct of Music Town, and everyone is just, you know, obviously and rightfully so, just outraged by what's going on. Well, yeah, on. that means that they can't dance anymore, they can't sing, they can't flirt and probably have sex with each other in the the premises. That's It's no fun. Mm. But Mark says they mustn't weep, not today, not on Rex Manning Day. Rex Manning shows up to Empire Records with his secretary, Jane, played by 90s character actress Debbie Mazar. He right off the bat is complaining about his haircut and the venue he's at. In your opinion, is when the devil shows up in the film? Yeah, absolutely. I think that up till now, like, things have been... I mean, yeah, there is trouble in the horizon, and there's, like, you know, $9,000 missing. But overall, there's a sense of brotherhood, community, in this, you know, in Empire Records. There's, like I said, there's this, it's this temple, and people are, like, caring for each other. After Rex Manning shows up, that's when, like, things start getting seedy, and, you know, starting with, with Corey's plan to offer herself to him, which ends up terribly later. So while Rex is showing up here inside the store, we meet Warren, who is the the shoplifter, the adolescent hooligan, who Lucas chases throughout, like, not just the store, but the entire block surrounding it. They really take their shoplifting seriously here, and that's good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that, you know, a corporate store, they would just let him go. It's like, okay, whatever, it's not worth the effort to chase him. But if you're an indie store that has a reputation to maintain, you chase that guy. You don't care about, like, hitting him with the door of a car or anything. Rex comes in, and it's at this point where uh, Renee Zellweger, Gina shows up pretty much naked. We get our real eye candy moment of the film. She's wearing the new uh, Music Town uniform, and um, she was a looker back in her day. We should point out that all the characters are supposed to be teenagers. <laughs> so that is a 16-year-old, almost naked. <laughs> and Rex Manning likes what he sees. Yeah, yeah. And, and that comes back into play later yes. on. Oh, he's not the only one, though. I mean, everybody kind of... I was surprised at the fact that uh, Joe like stared at her for so long. I kept waiting for him to cover his eyes a lot sooner. It's his store, though. He's got to keep his eyes on at all times. Well, so he's God. He's not, you know, those thoughts don't even enter his mind. He's just He is the all-omnipotent. Yes. It's at this point, though, where he sends one of his sons, AJ, to fix the sign on the roof. And AJ, I think it's his... His, like, mission in life throughout the film to fix the sign because he's there and then he's not and he's there and then he's not. If AJ is not in the scene, then you can assume that he's fixing the sign on the roof. And and then there will be scenes where he's actually in the roof fixing the sign in case you didn't catch that. It's an ongoing struggle. I think it's more metaphorical, maybe symbolic in nature. That sign means something. Exactly. Jane, Rex's secretary, or assistant, as it were, is uh, being chastised constantly for working for Rex Manning, AJ and Lucas and Warren joins in and she just gets tired of the the youthfulness so she goes to Joe's office to retreat and we have really our only adult moment of the film where it's two people, you know, a bit over the age of 25 actually just talking about life and all its struggles. She says she doesn't know where she's heading and we get our backstory on Joe here. He used to be a musician and then he kind of just gave up on life. 
I mean, he still has a drum set, the sweet drum set. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is that is a, a. But it's like right in the middle of the movie. You know, that's all you need to like inform what happened before and what happens next. It, just that adult moment. Going into what you said about his character, he doesn't really say that he gave up. You get the sense that he felt he had a, a greater deed to do than yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he had to take care of his children. <laughs> Through these words of motivation, Jane just gets up and decides to quit, even though she's only been in Empire Records for probably close to 10, 15 minutes, and has been working for Rex Manning for quite a while. Right, but, but everything happens today, so of course today's the day that she quits. And Joe says, just not today, it can't be today. And Jane just storms out. That should be the tagline of the movie, Empire Records, just not today. <laughs> <laughs> She storms out, and Joe doesn't even go out to tell Rex Manning yet. He just, he has to vent somehow, and how better than to just take it out on that sweet drum set that's just been teasing us the entire time in his office. Yeah. He goes to his jukebox and flips on If You Want Blood by ACDC, and just starts annihilating the drums. Yeah, and this is, by now, we've gone through like maybe six or seven musical numbers in the movie. This one's probably the most impressive so far. He's drumming, and then Lucas and AJ are dancing, they get the shoplifter Warren to dance with them, and and people outside the store, they're also, like, dancing. It's its joyful. It's, you know, celebration of the Lord in a way. It's, it shows you the power of music. That's, that's the whole thing about music stores. The whole message of Empire Records is, like, music makes everything better. It's the glue of the earth, as Eddie says. Yes. So Mitch, the boss, shows up, and he's there for the deposit, which uh, Joe just kind of kayfabes him and gives him a fake deposit while Lucas distracts him. And it's really all he can do. It's the noble lie. Yeah, but also Mitchell's an idiot. I mean, uh, the man really, he's the man just by... He says it later, he inherited that building. It's not like he built up this business. It just came down from his family. And he can't even tell that, you know, he, he just gets handed a bag with allegedly $9,000 and he doesn't even bother to, like, check. He just blindly trusts Joe, which I guess, you know, Joe's a very trustworthy Again, guy. Again, $9,000 in 2015 dollars is a Yeah, lot. like, he's gonna, like, just drive it to the bank? Does this he is, have, like, an armored car? <laughs> like 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, that's a big deal. You should get, like, at least a briefcase or something and then handcuff it to your wrist. While this is all going on, we get a shot up on the roof where AJ's actually fixing the sign and he's psyching himself up because today, of all days, is the day that he's gonna tell Corey that he loves her. Yes. That is AJ's thing. I mean, okay, so he is a painter or some sort of artist and also, like, his story is that he's in love with Liv Tyler's character, Corey. And and so that's basically what you see him doing throughout the movie. It's just getting ready to tell her how much he cares for her. Whilst doing his art. He's yes. not just a drawer or a painter. He does uh, you know, some physical art throughout the course of the film, too. That aforementioned bucket of quarters that Lucas brings in, AJ takes it upon himself to just glue him on the floor. Because that's art, and that's the kind of thing that you foster in an artist-friendly environment. You know, like a music store. Burko, Coyote Shivers who comes back into play later in the film, I guess we're not quite sure of, but was Deb's boyfriend leading into her... Oh, he had some before. sort of relationship with her. Yeah. He tries to talk to her, and she's just not having it, and she she's really a tragic figure and really represents the white adolescent female, I think, in that she has a lot of problems. A lot of them aren't addressed by society, and it causes her to react in such ways that she does. Yeah, I mean, you know, shaving her head didn't really fix it. It just, it, it was just like a flare gun going off. It, it allows for, like, a scene later where, like, Joe tries to, like, talk to her and, you know, it was a cry for help. The suicide attempt wasn't as much as the shaving of the head. Right, because nobody noticed the wrist. But once she <laughs> shaved her head, everybody was like, hey, what's going on? AJ was the only one that really noticed her wrist, and then, but the shaving of the head, like, set yeah. everyone off. We go back to the break room, and Warren's getting hauled off, and he's trying to just tell the cops, you know, Lucas stole this money, I didn't do anything wrong, but... 
he gets taken off. You know, shoplifting is a serious crime, and I, I feel like it doesn't go punished the way it should. This film accurately portrays what should happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, you know, and they don't really, they're just doing it because it's for his own good. That's the thing. You know, that kid, you can't leave him unchecked. The movie later proves that, you know, this was the right thing to do. You can't just forgive things. You have to teach them a lesson. That is the harsh love from the Almighty. Joe, he finds Deb and tries to talk to her about what's going on exactly, and he's giving his best effort, but she's just not having any of it. But he tells her, you're doing a good job. Yeah. And you know, sometimes that's all you need. She, she kind of like, she gets snarky about it, but I think that actually makes a difference. Joe knows all these kids that work for him are having troubles. I mean, we've been teenagers before. There's a lot that comes to it emotionally and physically that's hard to deal with. There were times in life that I wish I'd had a music store to go to so that the manager would, like, you know, give me a pep talk. I wish I had a Joe at certain points in my life yeah. to, to, you know, just at least tell me I'm doing a good job. You yeah, know? yeah, I mean, he doesn't even have to give me a job, but, you know, let me hang out at the music store. Joe's back in his office all of a sudden, and that's another thing, the pace of this film. you you got to keep with it or else you're going to get lost. Oh, yeah, there's, well, you know, there's a lot going on in Rex Manning Day, mm-hmm. so, yeah, you really have to keep up with it. There's a lot going on also as far as... Like, Joe spends a lot of time in his office. The first half of the movie is just Joe going in and out of his office constantly. And I think he serves, in a way, as, as the audience's point of view, you know? Because he's all, every time he comes out of his office, he has to, like, catch up with what's going on with all the crazy employees. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's helpful. So Joe's sitting in his office as Corey comes in and explains to him that she's going to take Rex Manning his lunch. His break in the day has come. He's signed plenty of autographs. He's ready for lunch, and Joe informs her that Burko is going to take him his lunch, which, you know, I wouldn't think it would be that big of a deal who's going to take him his lunch, but Corey is very insistent on it because this is her moment of destiny in her mind, at least. She has a mission, and that mission is to just give herself to the devil. She wants the forbidden fruit, and she wants to give herself to Rex Manning. Her life, in her mind, has led to this moment. She takes Rex's lunch and is... Shut down in the most humiliating of fashions when she throws herself at him. Yes, she takes her clothes off, most of them, and then... She hasn't graduated from high school yet, mind you. Right, right, right. But Rex Manning is not (laughs) perturbed by this at all, which I guess I understand. He's supposed to be some sort of, like, pop star, so I'm sure he has teenage girls throwing themselves at him all the time, or he used to, at least. But yeah, it's it's pretty ugly. It's uh, the movie suddenly, like, you know, I I hate to say it, but it's uglier than the wrist-cutting and all that stuff. It's just, like, really, then you get hit when, like, poor Liv Tyler gets... She thinks she's gonna have some sweet lovemaking going on, and instead... Rex Manning is just, like, really crude about wanting a blowjob. It's pretty vicious. Corey then retreats to the roof of Empire Records to just, you know, unleash her feelings, and she's just having herself a good cry when AJ shows up from behind her, and, you know, worst timing possible, but it it would happen on a day like today. Right, and of course, AJ was there because he was fixing the sign. Yes, AJ was fixing the sign, but Corey presents herself, and AJ just takes it upon himself. It's, you know, it's time to tell her how you feel. And he is shut down in almost as brutal of a fashion as Corey was shut down a few moments prior. Poor timing. Just kids, don't do that. If, you know, if the girl just got humiliated by somebody she had a crush on, you may think that's the time to pounce, but no, not really. That's that's just bad. Not if you, you really have strong feelings for her. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he could have been a little sleazier and just maybe, you know, just gotten like... Done the arm around the poor girl routine. Right, you know, just like a, a temporary hookup. But no, he really cared for her and, he, he, yeah, he blew it. And he, he gets pretty upset by this. AJ disappears for a while because he, he, he needs to go draw. He needs to express his emotions in an artistic form. While Corey goes out to lunch with Gina, Renee Zellweger, and they have a, a, a caddy back and forth about Gina's flusiness. 
Corey's just really upset, and she really hurts Gina's feelings here. Yeah, I don't think we've talked enough about Gina, and it's kind of a shame, because really, yeah, she doesn't have much of a character arc, but really, Rene Zellweger owns this movie. I think that she's just, she lights up the screen every time she's on, even more so than Ethan Embry. <laughs> but yeah, this scene, basically, it, it just reinforces everything I've been saying, you know, about the devil infiltrating the temple of Empire Records, and now, you know, their big fight, of course, happens when they're outside of Empire Records. They're away from the protection of, you know, the church, and, and Joe and they just have this this horrible they say horrible things to each other you know and it's gonna get worse but this is you know it just shows you that the devil's wrecking havoc you say that Gina has a good character arc no I say that she doesn't have a oh she doesn't have a good character arc. which is a shame I mean you know she's just there and she's like I guess she's just like the promiscuous hot girl you know it's hard to pinpoint what is like what her deal is if she has like an actual story which is fine in a way you know I mean I think the movie knows when to cut on the on the journeys and, you know, it's like, well, you need to focus on AJ as an artist and Corey as, you know, somebody that needs to appreciate who loves her. And Lucas is somebody who needs to be more responsible as an adult and Joe and so on, you know. But he, Rene would be too much. Lucas is essentially Jesus. And right, he, so right. He, Jesus, you know. You just need to pay attention to what Lucas does in general. Exactly. So Gina, I guess, would be the temptress because what, what I was going to say is here that after this fight, she gets one goal in mind and it's, all right, fuck Corey. I'm going after Rex, and I'm going to make her pay. Where right, yeah. Which Falling funny. into Rex's, the devil's plan all exactly. along. Exactly. I'm starting to understand this theory of yours the more and more this unravels. This is unbelievable. So she goes back to the store, and she's just, you know, like the Terminator, focused on, on Rex. She's going to conquer this. And she, she's got it. I mean, she knows what buttons to push, and all she has to do is mention his underwear, and just, like, you know, smile at him. And then before you know it, they're going to the break room, past Lucas, who knows what's going on, because he's Jesus, so he knows. He sees the sins that are about to unfold. Yes. They go to the, the back copy room and just shut the door behind him. Meanwhile, in the lobby, AJ, I guess, is trying to convince himself that he's happy. So he plays the Rex Manning song, Say No More. It turns into a little party there in the lobby. Yeah, musical number, number, musical number 23 in the movie. There's a lot of dancing. He takes Robin Tunney's character. Deborah. He takes Deb out the dance floor and start, they start dancing. And then, you know, Mark dances with like some old lady. Everybody's dancing. Like customers are dancing with each other. Lucas is out there with his piece of couch because he's not allowed to leave the couch. So, so he, he takes a couch with he him. He takes a cushion with him. Joe is up on the balcony and loses it at this point. I think it's just been a long day for Joe. Every now and then, God gets angry. It, exactly. You know, when you, when you create salvation, sometimes it doesn't act the way you want it to and you'll lose it. Yeah, and, and, you know, he doesn't know it, but, you know, there is corruption in his home. There's corruption in the temple, you know. There's there's the devil having sex with Gina. Currently, and he loses it and explains to everyone. I'm not really sure why he needed to tell all the customers there, but they're about to become a music town, and the fun is about to end. And him and Lucas get into it, you know. His uh, proverbial son and he are just going back and forth. Yeah, and if, you, if you ever wanted to see like a Jesus versus God fight, like this probably as close as you're ever going to get. Lucas smarts off a bit too much, you know, and it's um, it's kind of like, you know, some of the scenes in Interstellar where Jessica Chastain and Casey Affleck start going at it. It's just the the animus is so high and the tension is just so high. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's been leading to this. It's, it's led to this showdown, and Joe takes Lucas by the collar and takes him into his office, and we don't get to see the actual fight, but you get the impression it's pretty one-sided, and, and Joe puts the beat down on Lucas. He throws him out of his office. Meanwhile, Gina's wrapping up with Rex Manning. The door cracks open, and Gina comes out, followed by Rex, and he asks, what, no applause? 
Yeah, and everybody's watching. I mean, everybody by then has gathered. The last person to show up, of course, is Corey. This leads into, you know, what you would call Oscar Oscar scene number two. Number two. Yeah. AJ loses it, tackles Rex Manning. Joe and, I believe, Lucas restrain him, and then Rex just... <laughs> just, un- just so he can get punched. <laughs> yeah, Rex uncorks a sucker punch on AJ. And, you know, Rex is kicked out of the store at this point, and he's asking where his uh, secretary Jane was. She quit, pal. It's at this point he just gets sunned by the entire store. They all just tell him what a joke he's become. And Rex disappears. Yeah, you know what? If you ask me, he left on a high, though. I mean, <laughs> they're not telling him anything that he didn't know already. You know, telling him he's like a has-been and he that nobody really cares, nobody really listens to his album. But all he has to say is like, well, listen, I just had sex with Renee Zellweger and it was awesome. And then he just walks away. And he smiles because he knows even for that one moment... That the store is united, but as soon as he leaves there, it's going to be a complete breakdown. Oh, yeah, yeah. The so, devil has done its work. <laughs> yes. Give the devil his due, because he's fucked shit up. As he leaves, yes, Oscar moment number two unfolds as Renee Zellweger and Liv Tyler l- unleash into an epic diatribe of just screaming back and forth one another. Yeah, they just like aired months, years of dirty laundry. There's just it's the know, two secrets they have on each other. Yeah, you know, I know you're a slut and I know you're a speed addict. So it's just you know they're airing their dirty laundry for the whole world to see, really. And you know, of course, Joe is the one that has to separate them because he understands. They need to, you know, air their grievances, but this isn't the right way to settle it. But Liv Tyler freaks out, has an absolute meltdown, starts just wrecking the entire lobby of the store. It's sad, but you need to hit that low point, you know, where just, like, our heroes, what appeared to be the strongest friendship in the movie, is suddenly destroyed. And And the unlikeliest of friendships is what, you know, saves it, as Deb comes in and just says, you know, I can help her. When we started this, I wouldn't have expected Deb and Corey to have a budding friendship. But she takes her off and, you know, they just have a little talk in the ladies' room and, you know, everything's okay again. I guess that plants the seeds for <laughs> even one more big set piece in this crazy day, which is Corey organizing some sort of, like, funeral party for Deb, which is a great idea. It's, again, it goes back to, you know, those those fundamental tenets of, of religion, you know, of, like, cleansing yourself. There's, like, this cleansing. Uh, they have a, a, a funeral for Deb where she's just lying down as if she was dead and then the rest of the employees are around her and they all start basically confessing their sins and you know just opening themselves up you know the entire time the store is open there's only like one person back there (laughs) it's mark you know the most mentally and physically inept of the entire bunch is running the store but Uh, that's okay because you know it leads to gina and Corey making up yeah you have to sacrifice business for mental health during this you know we learn what i think we really knew all along is that joe is the you know, father, the adopted father of Lucas. Yeah, which I, mean, I told you. This. <laughs> yeah. And if you're on Julio's train of thought, you would have seen this coming from a mile away. And it really explains a lot. I yeah. Think. And it, it really it ties the story together full circle. But yeah, like I said, Gina and Corey make up here. We learn of all of Gina's insecurities. Uh, I guess she had a mother that was a floozy, much like her, and she just doesn't want to become that. Mark calls for help, and AJ runs to help. And then Mark comes back to pay his respects to Deb when Warren shows back up, front door, with a gun, a loaded gun. And we just hear a gunshot, and that's when everyone just kind of perks up as to, like, what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah, things uh, things got real. Uh, I guess, who's Warren, then? Is Warren Judas? Is Warren Lazarus? You know, cause it might kinda... be Paul. <laughs> oh, because of that one time that Paul pulls a gun on Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, 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 I remember yeah, he shows up with a gun, a giant gun. The gun's like the size of his head. And a hand cannon, as Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction would refer to it. Yes, he completely freaks out the 15 customers that have been hanging out at Empire Records the entire day. 
Everybody takes cover, but it's Deb who finally disarms him. She just faces him on because she's not afraid of anything anymore. Well, Joe goes out there. He he's the one willing to take the bullet, but she jumps in front. You know, she's there to def- defend her. You know, her Almighty at that point disarms Warren, and turns out all Warren's really there for is he just wants a job. And he wants some love. I mean, really, you ask him for a job at Empire Records, you're you're just asking for a place in you know the Almighty's. Family. You know, you know, shoplifting an act of adolescence like that is a, you know a, a cry for help in the first place. But then bringing a gun and you know pointing it at people, it's clear you just need some love and affection. Yeah, which is you know it's just a theme running through the movie this, these are just damaged characters that that just want help and joe is able to provide them i mean you know he ends up offering uh warren a job he still calls the cops because you know again you have to atone for your sins but we find out that because he's a minor and there were blanks on the gun they can't really do anything right they just take him away but yeah. he goes he goes away with uh with a name tag he has a job whenever he wants to return the morale at this point is just at an all-time high when you know all the crew members are just throwing any extra money they have at Lucas, and they come up with about $3,000, which unfortunately just pales in comparison to the nine grand they're owed. It's what we call now, I guess, in, in, in our little contrarian's world, that's like the It's a Wonderful Life moment, where like everybody starts just chipping in and they're just giving money, whatever money they have. But they realize it's not going to be enough, and this is where, I guess, our guardian angel of the film, Mark, really takes it upon himself. Uh, because of the shooting, there was a local news affiliate there covering the story, and Mark goes out and just informs the viewing public that there's going to be a party at Empire Records and that they're going to be there to sell beer and have live music and have a good time. Without really spoiling the end of the movie, it saves the day. Mark yeah, saves I mean, the day. that is like, I, I guess we can assume that that was like a Saturday when this whole thing happened because everybody shows up. Yeah. Well, they, they throw a party really fast and everybody in town shows up, so of course. And despite the fact that none of them are out of high school, they secure kegs of beer pretty easily and... Joe says, don't worry about it, we can just sell alcohol in the street, no problem. And Eddie even says he can sell his brownies, which are laced with something. But You know, and then uh, Coyote Shivers and his band set up on the roof, along with Renee Zellweger, who we learn her talent at this point is singing. You couldn't really tell before, you just thought that her talent was like looking good, I guess. But no, she, she gets her turn on the spotlight. Mitch shows back up at the store, wondering where the hell his money is, he wants his deposit. Him, Joe, and Lucas just kind of have this big standoff. Mitch realizes he can't tackle the co- collective forces of Joe and Lucas together. Yeah, I mean, in the end, he's just the man. You know, it's like the race survived the devil. The man is, is all he cares about is money. It's uh, he has no chance. He all he does is all he has to do is just stand aside and let Joe and his team do the thing, and you know, get their own money. Joe confronts Mitchell with all the money that's been raised throughout the course of the evening, and they made that nine thousand dollars back very quickly. He just comes in with, looks like a big Culligan jug of cash and just says he'll buy it from him. And he doesn't even count it. He just accepts the offer on the he table. He just takes a jar and he's like, hey, I'll sell it to you cheap. During all this, you know, AJ's back up on the roof. Just He's trying to fix the sign because, God damn it, if one thing's going to happen tonight, that Empire Records sign is going to light up. Everything else has happened today, so why not? This has to be the day that the Empire Records sign gets fixed. It would be the perfect finish. Corey shows back up there, and she, you know, she's angry. I think she's just had a long day and just realizes that that's who she should be with, but she doesn't want him to limit himself. And so she just goes on this big tirade about how talented he is and how he should just go away. And, you know, he grabs her before she hits him and just says, you know, I've quit and I'm going to go to art school in Boston so I can be close to you at Harvard. Destiny. And Joe saw this coming all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I think he he played everything. I think that that letter from Harvard came like a week ago, but he he made it all happen so that you know the letter would be delayed a week, so everything happens on that day. So they embrace, and you know, fittingly enough, as they embrace, the sign lights back up. 
true love was the key to fixing the sign, not electronics. We go to the rooftop, and you know the sign's lit up, and I guess it's the after party, because we're all up there dancing now. Mark and Eddie, I guess our two guardian angels, are up there as well. Joe, you know, everyone's up top there. And it's, it's been a victory for everybody, I think. It, it's a nice party. It's a, it, I think that it hints at uh, Lucas and Gina getting together, because mm-hmm. they're the first people dancing that you can see, and that makes me happy. It was a long day, but they made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and, you know, the movie just leaves you with this very clear message, which is, damn the man. Fuck making money, fuck, like, being corporate. You know, what you really have to do is stay true to your spirit as an artist and, you know, just embrace the artistic community. Your generation, you know, it needs to stick together. And with the help of a guardian angel named Mark, you'll be on your way to doing that. Yes, you may think he's on drugs, but really there's just a whole lot of stuff going on there that you, you just can't handle. He handles it for you. The one thing I was thinking, because while we were watching the movie, we, you know, we were like, oh, wow, that's like, that's that person, that's that person. You know, you've, you've known them because they, they have a career. Mm-hmm. The one person that you don't see, or at least that I haven't seen ever again, is the guy that plays AJ. I think it's funny that the movie ends with him, you know, leaving Empire Records. He leaves the safety of the church to face life on his own. And in a way, I guess he also left showbiz forever <laughs> because you never saw him again. T-shirts, T-shirts, T-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling T-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart Goes to Montreal, Some Dead Guy, The Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, Not Windham and Bradshaw. Wrestling! SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com, SmartsLikeUs.com. Selling you wrestling T-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. All right, we ready for real talk? Yes. Okay. All right, so Empire Records was released on September 22nd, 1995. Yes, let me read you a note from... Okay, so I have two, because this is funny. This is Eric Vanstrom from, from FilmCritic.com, and he says, He has a good soundtrack, lots of free-for-all dance scenes, and derision towards aging singers and capitalists. And you just can't get enough of that. And he's right. Now, the funny thing is, this was posted on January 1st, 2000. So that means that this guy watched the movie and reviewed it, like, on New Year's Day. That was his New Year's... <laughs> his New Year's Eve party was watching Empire Records and then writing a review of it. But that was 2000, so that was, like, way after the fact. Now, if you want to, like, uh, look at the one of our shining lights, Roger Ebert, he reviewed it on September 22nd, 1995, and he gave it one star. So that's, it's a bad review, but he says... If the movie's a lost cause, it may at least showcase actors who have better things ahead of them. Which he's right. Most I think, that, did, yeah. you know, yeah, that was just like a springboard for all these uh, actors and actresses to go on to bigger and better things. But I know this this movie's close to your heart, so... It is. It's very close. Uh, I don't know if you remember, Julio, uh, several moons ago when we worked together to combat boredom for a week at work, we strategically went through and made our top 25 movies of all time list. Yes. And this movie is in my top 25 movies of all time. What What's its placement? I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I love this movie so much, and I was so excited that we were doing it. Oddly enough, until we did it, I never knew the director's name, Alan Moyle, so he didn't really do anything else, but... Uh, what else did he need to do? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Drop the mic, walk away. Looking it through the, through the lens that, like, when we try to do these things and be like, you know, find something one way or the other. When I was trying to be, like, forcefully positive about it, the glaring issues with it come through. <laughs> like, it is dumb. Those kids are supposed to be, like, 16, 17, and 18, and the situations they're in are just, like, ridiculous. And there's no record store in the country that would make nine grand in an evening. So that kind of stuff's funny, but... It reflects what I love about, like, film as an art form. And, like, music's the same way. 
when I first saw it when I was a kid, like, it was so cool to me and so made such an impression on me that, like, that's what stuck with me the entire time. I would have been, like, eight or nine the first time I saw this movie. Those main characters are what I thought it was to be cool as a teenager in the 90s, so that's why it's, like, always stuck with me. Yeah, Truthfully... It's a, it's a rude awakening later yeah, on. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> fucked up. They dress like Lucas. It's cool. <laughs> Do you think part of it was the music, too, or...? Yeah, like, that's the one thing... I don't care if you find someone who hates the movie. No one can argue that it has an amazing soundtrack. Some of the negative reviews we were going through, everyone's just like, hey, it's got a good soundtrack, but... Yeah, I mean, if you like the 90s, it does. As you should. Yeah, because... I mean, well, I, but some people just have bad taste. It's true. Movie. I think some of the acting's really good, though. Some? <laughs> yes, some. <laughs> Maxwell Caulfield, the guy who played Rex Manning, I think he's really, really funny. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't crazy, but I, I think he has, like, you know, I guess he has a tricky character. He, he looks a little stiff to me. But I don't know. Maybe, you know what? Uh, you know, you may be thinking that he's really funny, but maybe he's really funny in spite of the performance. Maybe. That would be my take. Maybe he could be, like, completely genuine and I'm giving him too much credit and being like, oh, he's so funny. But he was, like, actually trying to be <laughs> serious. Roy Cochran is smooth in it and like he's obviously become a steady actor and he, he gets work pretty regularly so I, I said it during the funny part of the podcast but yeah I think Renee Zellweger just like steals the movie she is just head and shoulders above anybody else in there and I like the, I like the movie she's the only one who's been nominated for an Oscar from that cast right uh you tell me Liv Tyler didn't get nominated for Armageddon that's uh... oh that's uh, the song the song got nominated <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Probably. I mean, Ethan Embry hasn't yeah, had his day in the sun yet. Okay, let's address this. Like, the Ethan Embry The issue. Ethan Embry situation in this movie. What is his role? <laughs> what's, what's going on with Ethan Embry in this movie? He's... I mean, obviously, he's on something or some things. Like he's... he's. I can't tell, like, if his character is supposed to be, like, permafried from, like, all the drugs he's done or, like, what exactly is going on. Or if he's, like... Just mentally challenged. Yeah, exactly. There is... Yeah, you get the feeling that not everything is working right up there. You know, I wonder if he just got the script and it was like, this is just kind of plain. I need to, you know, add something to it. You know, if I just say the lines... He was young and ready to take on Hollywood at Right, point, he needed so. to make an impression. It's like, a, it's a big cast. There's a lot of people here. They're just, like, charismatic. These people are going to make it. I need to make an impression. <laughs> so I'll just play it. I'll just really play it. He's, you know... I wasn't kidding when I said that you really notice him every time he's on screen because yeah. he, you know, he's really playing it really big. I personally, the, the performance doesn't bother me. It's interesting. Yeah, you know, it doesn't... Watching the movie, I wouldn't walk away thinking, wow, that's a great actor, yeah. you know? But I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's that guy from Empire Records. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't oh. surprise me, though, that he disowns this movie, that he just doesn't get it. I mean, yeah, he's the one that, like from the cast that has said he doesn't understand the cult following that it has. Yeah, he's probably kind of embarrassed of his performance. Whereas Anthony LaPaglia is just like, yes, Empire Records. <laughs> Re-release it yeah. one more time. I'll do the commentary. Johnny Whitworth, AJ, who, you know, God, I do love this movie, but his acting is painful at some point. He's to watch. like this cross. It's like He's like James Franco trying to do uh, Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted. <laughs> it's just like, it has that, I mean, again, it doesn't like really ruin the movie, but it's not great. Renée Zellweger is great. She's She's just so good. I can't believe that. I don't know, I mean, I guess I, I haven't looked at her filmography to see what she did before this, but, you know, she comes in as, like, an actress. It's like most of the people there, they feel like they're still, like, feeling their way through acting, Yeah. you know? Well, I mean, not La Paglia, but, you know, all the others. They're like, oh, these are, like, 
the new stars, you know, the new actors, new generation, and Zellweger is just like, no, she's just fully formed and ready to go into, like, Jerry Maguire or whatever else. There's parts in where I'm fairly positive Liv Tyler didn't even know the camera was on. She was just, like, trying to psych herself <laughs> into acting. Uh, and then the film itself, in terms of, like, the story, rather, the pacing and everything, I was talking about this. It is one of my favorites, so just reading what I have from, like, the director and writer and everything, like, uh... It was supposed to be a lot longer to flush out the characters. That explains a lot because time is not linear at all in this film. Like it's just a series of scenes. Their lunch loosely... break. Their lunch break takes half a day. I mean, it's just so much <laughs> happens in that lunch break. Oh, and then when they're at work, so much happens in like these very just like concise periods of time. And yeah, it's it's like they filmed two dozen scenes and then just cut and paste them together in MS Paint, and they were like, <laughs> "All right, here's a movie." Yeah, they they go through like weeks worth of character development, you know, and it's it's just really fast. All those mysteries of the movie, like you know, what the hell is up with the guy that works at the at the pizza place? He also works in the vinyl uh, section. section. I'm sure that's answered in a longer cut of the movie that actually explains, you know, what the hell's up with that guy. Much like Gina's whole thing for singing, because like that yes, that's what I was telling you earlier. Like you know, she doesn't have as much as I like her. She her character doesn't have an arc, really. She kind of gives you her backstory about, you know, her mom and why she acts the way she does, but her character, you know, her big scene at the end is her singing with the band and the rooftop. That doesn't pay off anything that's been building up during the movie. If you were, like I told you when we were watching the movie, if you are going to have a character singing up there, it would be Ethan Embry's character, Mark, because he's the one that's been talking about wanting to have a band throughout the movie, you know? And so it would make sense that his band, you know, he would get his chance at having a band and play in the climax, but instead He's just down there, you know. Well, and then, like, shoe opposite foot type thing, Deb's character has this big, like, emotional arc, and there's no resolution to it at the end at all. It's like, so she's not going to kill herself. (laughs) Right. They do a funeral, but the funeral ends up being about everybody else but her, really. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes this thing, this device through which we find out that uh, Lucas was adopted by Joe, and it's just an opportunity for uh, Corey to say that she misses Gina, and Mm -hmm. so they make up. And really, it doesn't really add... And they've only been apart for roughly 70 minutes or so. In, in, the, in the movie. I'm sure in the original cut, in the, in the script, they were apart for like months, and that's why she missed her so much. <laughs> I do remember a quote from the director saying something like, in the original script, the movie would at least have taken two days. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I don't fault it. There's like... I mean, there's plenty of movies, you know, just like the silly comedies where like everything happens in one day. And you just, that's just part of the genre, you know, yeah. you just take it. Of course, everything's going to happen today because that's that's what the movie. Every about. single slasher movie ever. Right. Like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, everybody gets killed on this day. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, all the big news happen on this day. As long as it's entertaining, it's it works. And I, I think this movie's entertaining. It, it is a cult hit and like, we were talking about it. It only had a two-week release and didn't even make $300,000. It has this huge cult following, though, and even if we weren't doing this podcast as we do, we would still be talking about this movie 20 years later because it defines seminal film. If you showed this to... And you really like his movie. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, in terms of, like, it was of a very specific time, and you and I were both at the right age for that time, and... Like, if you showed this to a group of, like, 16-year-olds, if you showed it to, like, 316-year-olds today, 90% of them would just be like, that's, like, I don't get anything about that movie at all. And right. the other 10% would be like, oh, it's so retro. But um, <laughs> something about it works, because I'm not the only one who fucking loves it. It's got, like, a huge 
underground type following. Can't you just see like if it'd been a hit, it would it would be a Broadway musical by now? Oh, absolutely! You know, just like Empire Records, a musical. Martin Short yeah. would play. Or no, um, <laughs> Billy Crystal would play Joe. Just you know, eight days a week. Martin Short would play. Uh, the man. Mitchell. Yes, and like I told you when we were watching the movie, James Marsden would play uh, <laughs> Rex. Rex Man, it would be James Marsden. Uh, and then on his off weeks, Daniel Radcliffe would play Lucas. Yes, yeah. Uh, you, you know, you just breed the next generation of young actors over there on stage playing, you know, Corey and Gina and uh, AJ. But as we said, like 24%, this, I think maybe more so than any movie we've covered so far, kind of is our whole mission statement about what's wrong with the whole Rotten Tomatoes system. You can't judge this film on the same like level that you would judge It's a Wonderful Life or The Magnificent Seven or anything like that. That's the problem with that, is it's like you're saying every movie should be judged on the same scale. Yeah, I guess the amount of... You can get the same amount of joy from Empire Records than you could from It's a Wonderful Life, as long as you know, you're tuned in. And again, as much as I... And obviously gushing about how much I love this movie. I admit, it's, like, just poorly, poorly made. It's a mess. It's it, a mess. it is. It's a disaster. And, like, I was telling you, my dad fucking hates this movie because he points out the obvious. He's like, the dude stole nine grand. He should have been arrested on the spot. And that's what would happen in real life. And even on top of all that, from a technical standpoint, everything about it is a disaster. But... That's not what matters. If something resonates with you, it works. Well, that's why I, I picked that, that quote from Ebert. Because I think that the actors, the cast makes it work. You know, the cast makes you care. They they really charm you into just looking past the plot holes and not caring about, like, all exactly. the Exactly. It's work. believable. The premise and everything's stupid, but you believe those people work in that store and that's the environment. That's yeah, that and, and, you know, you have fun with them having fun. That's, yeah. Uh, so... That's really all that matters when you're watching something like that, which is why, like, uh, what is, like, the, you know, it's, yeah, it's 24, 26 for critics, but the user rating on Run Tomatoes is, like, much higher. It's, like, in the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that that kind of shows the disconnect, and that's why they should do a Broadway show, damn it. <laughs> you might need to trademark that or, like, patent that, because someone's going to hear this and be like, I start writing it. I mean, I, I, can, I can polish that script, make it better, and just really, like make those music numbers pop. I've seen the Gin Blossoms in concert two times in the past few years, and I can tell you that their music's still good, so, you know, let's let's get them up there. They'll be down for just, like, a full-on soundtrack for uh, Empire Records. <laughs> They'll be like, yes, <laughs> I'm tired of playing bars. No, the other thing that I was going to say, as I was watching it, you know, I was having a good time. This is only the, the second time I've seen it, and it really, it is more like the first time. Like, the, before this, I'd seen bits and pieces on TV. I remember what, like, I remember the big finale with, like, the the kids singing, and I remember uh, Deb shaving her head. The kids singing. I have to call them kids. Old man. Even Yeah, I mean, even though they're not kids in the movie, they were younger than me. And, you know, Deb's funeral, I remember, like, very few things. I remember really liking the character of Lucas uh, and not really realizing, like, how disturbed he is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it, but it's not a movie I have a connection with, uh, you know, the way you do. But it made me think that uh, there's another 90s movie that I have that connection with, which is Reality Bites. And it's kind of like the same thing. It's not as far from a perfect movie, but it's one of those movies where, like, the the performances just, you know, and the, the, the moments, like, just carry you over all the way to the end. So I can understand why you're so forgiving <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, when we were watching it, like, the microscope that we put it on we were watching earlier, some things that I wasn't even cognizant of before, I was just like... Uh, yeah, that, that that's like that, and that's not that good. But yeah, it's 
I was shown this movie by my older cousins, Matt and Sarah, when I was a little kid, and, like, I thought they were the coolest people in the world, and so that means this movie must be the coolest movie in the world, and, you know, you just kind of watch it more, and nostalgia kicks in and all that shit, and, yeah, I fucking love it, but, yeah, it's, uh... It, yeah, it's it's better than reality bites. I'll tell you that. Uh, no, according to Run Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. I, I just check the point of this. <laughs> reality bites is at sixty five percent, which puts it in that gray area Ooh. where we can't really do it. But maybe we'll do it in one of our special gray area days. And user score is seventy five percent. So it's another one where the users like it more than the critics. Not not as much as Empire Records. When was the last time you saw Reality Bites? Uh, it's been a while. Oh, well, that's the thing. You, maybe yeah. you'll rewatch it. And now that you, you have renewed love for uh, Ethan Hawke, maybe you'll appreciate this early performance of his. That's true. All right, so that was Empire Records. I think that was the most emotional and sent- sentimental I've gotten over anything we've done so far. Uh, you're a big softie. It I- was uh, it, just 90s music. That's all it takes. It, it, that's part of it, yeah. I think uh, that and... Renee Zellweger singing. That, that, that'll do it for it me. It really touches you where it matters. <laughs> okay, so we're on iTunes. You can, if you're listening to us on SoundCloud or the website, we're on iTunes. Just search for The Contrarians. Subscribe, rate us, leave a comment, all that stuff. Or if you don't know about our website, go to our website. It's wearethecontrarians.com and there's pictures and you can leave comments. And if you want to email us, we are at uh, wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that's all the information except for like what's on our next episode. Episode 9 will be... Jaws. Yes, the Steven Spielberg alleged masterpiece uh, more like disaster yeah I'm sorry if it's called Jaws I want to see Jaws I want to see like just ominous shots of the water the I only thing know. more disappointing than the film is the ride at Universal Studios it looks just like the movie you just see like a tip of the nose of the of the shark yeah <laughs> exactly yeah it's I don't much. know it, it made so much money you'd think that by now they would have re-released it with like CGI sharks that really like scare you yeah like something decent looking and then episode 10 will be a gray area episode with a movie to be determined do you have a candidate in mind? I said Dick Tracy a while ago, but now I'm thinking maybe reality... No, but it's too soon to do reality bites after Empire Records. Yeah, you can't, can't plug it that soon. No. Maybe. I'll do Snow White and the Huntsman. Is that like in the, in the mid... Really? It belongs to be in the high 90s, but it's in the, in the middle ground. What is it? Are you making this up? You just want to do <laughs> Snow White and the Huntsman? Maybe. All right, Julio, so that's going to do it for Empire Records. Next time I see you, it'll be Jaws. In the meantime, enjoy the Oscars, my friend. I will. I will. That's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right, you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. You know, the last movie on MDB, the last movie of his that has a poster, is uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance in 2011. He was Ray Kerrigan. Uh, was that... With Nicolas Cage? Yeah, there's a second one. I mean, both oh. of them have Nicolas Cage. Uh, and he was in Limitless. And, uh, <laughs> he was in Gamer. 
I mean, his characters have names, you know, so he's, I mean, I'm sure he's, he's making a living. He was in 310 to Yuma, 2007. Love that movie. Uh, that movie sucks. Uh, 